Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and former CIA analyst, who talks about the danger ahead for Israel's new extremist and ultranationalist government under returning Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Osprey Oriel Lake, Executive Director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, who discusses the goals of the proposed Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. And Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at FreePress.net, who assesses the wider impact of Elon Musk's rapid devolution of Twitter. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. For months, independent journalists in Russia have been under attack from the Kremlin. Journalists not towing the government's line on the Ukraine war have been labeled foreign agents, causing as many as 500 to leave the country since the invasion. According to The Economist, journalists have regrouped in cities including Berlin, Riga, Latvia, and Tbilisi in Georgia, writing stories on new platforms that reach an audience back home. Medusa, a news website staffed by Russian exiles, reported on the massacre of Ukrainian civilians in Bucha and claims that convicts in Ukraine were forced to join the pro-Kremlin mercenary army, the Wagner Group. A website founded by members of the punk band Pussy Riot are using open-source data to report on the number of Russian casualties in the Ukraine invasion. Inside Russia, journalists remain highly constrained and by law aren't permitted to call the Ukraine invasion a war. TV Rain, Russia's best-known independent TV channel, went dark eight days after the invasion was launched. Now based in Latvia, TV Rain is back on the air broadcasting via YouTube to 20 million viewers, mostly inside Russia. Moscow's radio station Echo was taken off the air soon after the invasion and is now based in Berlin, where it's streaming news and talk shows to a Russian audience via a smartphone app. E-commerce giant Amazon collected over $5 billion in economic development subsidies from U.S. states and municipalities, according to the advocacy group Good Jobs First, which tracks incentive deals to Amazon. The global retailer doubled its workforce during the pandemic, but is now in the process of laying off some 10,000 workers. Good Jobs First released their findings as part of the global Make Amazon Pay campaign where protest actions were organized in cities around the world on Black Friday. Over the past year, Amazon has also received tax breaks and subsidies in Germany, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. In the U.S., most of the subsidies have been used to build warehouses designed to serve upscale customers. Now concern about the economy has led Amazon to announce layoffs and the cancellation of some expansion plans. The company is refusing to sign its first collective bargaining agreement with warehouse workers in Staten Island, New York, where employees voted to unionize in April. 
Meanwhile, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is attempting to scrub his image clean with charitable giving announcements. As the nation's largest title lender, TitleMax thrives on a business model that lends money to risky clients in exchange for collateral, the title to the vehicle in which the customers drove to the store. In 2019, TitleMax's parent company, TMX Finance, reported $910 million in revenue, primarily from its TitleMax loans. But a growing coalition of lawmakers, religious leaders, and consumer advocates believe TitleMax and the title lending industry are operating as predatory leeches on cash-strapped working-class Americans. More than 30 states prohibit title lending or have laws highly regulating the industry. In 2016, TMX Finance paid a $9 million fine to the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which ruled that the company had misled customers about the full costs of its loans in Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. Since then, at least five states have passed laws capping interest rates that title lenders can charge at 36% annually. Georgia, however, has bucked this trend. The state law allows title lenders to charge upwards of 187% in annual interest rates, a destructive business practice that has shattered thousands of lives. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Jewish extremist and ultranationalist parties are about to have more power in Israel than they've had in 70 years. Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is set to return to office after his far-right coalition won elections November 1st, appointing some of the most incendiary figures in Israeli politics to key positions in his government. One of those named to a high-level position is Itamar Ben-Gavir, of the fascist Jewish Power Party, who will be in charge of police services inside Israel and the border police that operates in the occupied Palestinian territories. Ben-Gavir is a longtime supporter of the anti-Arab ideology of the late Rabbi Meir Kahane and an admirer of Israeli-American terrorist Baruch Goldstein, who massacred 29 Palestinian Muslim worshippers and wounded 125 others in 1994. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst. Here he talks about the danger ahead for Israel's new extremist government that many observers fear will provoke internal divisions inside Israel, further erode the rights of minorities, and incite violent conflict with Palestinians. We've never had a government in Israel with so many or any extremist politicians in such important positions of influence. That's the important thing, I believe. Netanyahu has already assigned 10 portfolios, 10 ministries, to people from the Religious Zionist Party and the Jewish Power Party, which is part of the Religious Zionist group. And the Religious Zionists themselves are already the, the second largest group 
within the coalition that Netanyahu has put together, which is a hard-right, ultra-Jewish coalition, and it's the third largest party in the Knesset. And all of this happened in the last uh, couple of years. So I look at Netanyahu the way I look at Donald Trump. They're they're both trying to stay out of jail. Netanyahu is facing uh, serious charges that are working its way very slowly through the Israeli court system. Trump's case is moving even more slowly through the U.S. legal system. And Netanyahu felt the only way he could get back into power was to turn the government over to these ultra-nationalists, who I consider the existential threat to Israel to begin with. I've never bought the idea that these are Arab countries out there, uh, or even Iran for that matter, that are existential threats. It's the ultra-Orthodox. Well, now they can claim 10 significant ministries, including uh, Ministry of Immigration, Education, Religious Affairs. There's a new ministry that's been set up to cater to these ultra-right-wingers regarding the national mission. That's going to take over from the Defense Department a lot of the custodian aspects of dealing with the West Bank and the settlements on the West Bank. Actually, I don't like the word settlements. They're really military outposts rather than uh, settlements. And then when you look at the individuals themselves who are uh, the leaders of the religious Zionists and the Jewish power, people like Smotrich, Ben Gavir, who will really be a major factor in controlling the West Bank, and then Avi Maoz, an extreme right-winger who's made his case to develop not just Jewish identity, but Orthodox Jewish identity. He's been very critical of Israeli Jews who are not Orthodox. He's anti-LGBT. He's against women serving in the military. He makes numerous references to Jewish identity and Jewish heritage, I think, which one of the reasons why I point to this is fascism, because race and ethnicity is very important to a fascist uh, state. And that's what we have here. So what it could mean once they get into these powerful positions, if Netanyahu can't control them or has to give in to them, uh, then I think you're going to get to see greater control of the day-to-day workings of the government over the West Bank by these ultra-right individuals. I think they will push for annexation of the West Bank, particularly what's known as Area C of the West Bank, which represents more than 60 percent of the territory and is under some Palestinian control, I think they're going to face de facto annexation. And there are 200,000 Palestinians in this area and only about 25,000 Israelis in a lot of these illegal settlements, or what I call outposts, uh, which actually violate Israeli law. Mel, there was an op-ed piece recently written in the Washington Post by two former U.S. diplomats, Daniel Kurtzer and Aaron David Miller, who urged the United States to cut U.S. weapon supplies to Israel if Benjamin Netanyahu's government moves forward to annex Palestinian land, as well as some other moves that would cause enormous controversy and possibly an explosion of violence. What are the chances are that the Biden administration will heed the advice of not just these two diplomats, but a lot of observers around the world who are concerned about the direction of this new Israeli government? Well, I think Biden is doing his best to ignore what's happening uh, in Israel. Uh, It took him a long time to respond to the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, which I think was an important uh, uh, marker in the Democratic Party's uh, willingness to step aside when these controversies uh, come to the surface. 
But as you say, the pressure is building on Biden. And I know Aaron David Miller. I don't know Dan Kurtzer. But these are two Zionists who've been strong defenders uh, of Israel. So the fact that they're willing to even talk about military aid, even though I don't expect anything to happen, I I think it's important. And it does uh, raise the possibility that people are willing to challenge Israel's control over U.S. decision-making and that our automatic vetoes in international forums, such as the United Nations, uh, Israel may not be able to obtain on a regular basis. So this could start a more honest debate. It could offer more credibility to the J Street lobby, which is a more progressive organization in terms of their stance toward a two-state solution. But Netanyahu, I think, believes he has the United States situation under control. And until he sees otherwise, I don't expect him to be conciliatory in any way, certainly not toward the Palestinians but not even toward Western Europe or the United States. And it's not, it shouldn't only be the government. I think I made the point in this op-ed or a previous one, it's, it's time for the Jewish diaspora in the United States and Western Europe to look back at what the ideals of Israel were in dealing with the founding of Israel in 1948 and where Israel is now and what a, a steady political decline this has been. That's quite alarming. That was Mel Goodman a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, a former CIA analyst and author. Find a link to Goodman's recent article on Israel's new extremist government titled Fascism Israeli Style and Related Analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The United Nations COP27 International Climate Conference has come and gone in Egypt, and the parties which include almost all the nations of the world, failed once again to call for an end to the production and burning of fossil fuels. The best the COP27 conference could do was reiterate a pledge from last year's conference that nations would commit to phasing down, not phasing out, coal. But another process that got underway in 2020 has as its goal completely ending the use and production of coal, oil, and gas. It's called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, and it was proposed by Vanuatu, a small Pacific island nation severely threatened by rising sea levels. The only other country to sign on so far is the neighboring island nation of Tuvalu. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhus spoke with Osprey Oreo Lake, founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, who also serves as a steering committee member for the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Here she explains how the effort is building and the ways in which it could interface with the ongoing campaign to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius under the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. The Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, it's an initiative rooted in vital efforts by the Pacific Island nations Um, So it has quite an interesting history and officially launched in its current form in 2020 by an international coalition of activists, scholars, um, and movement leaders, indigenous leaders. So there's a lot of different people engaged at this point, and it's really been inspired by the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, and the campaign is really designed to phase out fossil fuels and fast-track climate solutions. So that's its primary goal. 
and I think that's what's really essential, especially as I'm coming back from COP27 in Egypt, is that we all need to remember that the Paris Climate Agreement is designed around carbon emission reductions. In other words, how to reduce uh, the pollution we've already put into the atmosphere. This is um, a process that's very important to be sure, but it does not address the critical aspect of the supply end, meaning actual fossil fuels. And so what's very important about the treaty is it really is a parallel or complementary treaty that needs to go along with the Paris Climate Accord because it directly deals with phasing out all fossil fuels, coal, gas, and oil. It's very exciting because it is really uh, beginning to grow each year since 2020. And, you know, there's been a lot of endorsement by cities, by Nobel laureates, uh, health institutions. So now we've had two countries call for the treaty. So there is momentum building. Since that call for the treaty happened at COP27, there were at least 25 country multilateral bilateral meetings around the treaty because people became more and more interested in it. So I think it's really important to understand that we need another mechanism, another instrument, in addition to the Paris Climate Agreement, if we're going to deal with the source of the climate crisis, which is fossil fuels. You know, we're seeing Pacific Island nations calling for the treaty because they are vulnerable countries. They are countries that, due to sea level rise, that comes with global warming, that are greatly threatened. Um, and it's their very existence. We're talking about you know, their cultural existence, their existence as, as countries, as peoples. So, you know, it's an urgent cry, really, for there to be a phase out of fossil fuels, which is really the only way we're going to have the kind of emission reductions that we actually need to meet what the science is telling us we need to do in time. What would the mechanism be if, if more countries come on board? This would be something that then would be brought up to the United Nations for for ratification or, or what? Yes, it could be brought into a UN process for there to be, you know, in the same way that we are working on uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, there could be a way that uh, countries would negotiate a treaty very much like they did the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. So we have seen these kinds of treaties work in the past, which is what this treaty is based upon. And it has three key pillars which are one, the non-proliferation or preventing the proliferation of coal, oil, and gas by ending exploration and production, which is something we need to do immediately. As um, we know, the IPCC has said, and the International Energy Agency has called for no more fossil fuel expansion if we're going to meet the 1.5 target of the Paris Agreement. So that's number one. Number two, you know, sort of a global disarmament or phasing out existing stockpiles and production in line with the Paris 1.5 degree goal, reducing these stockpiles. And the third pillar of, of the treaty would engage with a peaceful transition, meaning fast tracking solutions and a just transition off of fossil fuels for every worker, community and country, because obviously you know, economies and people's way of life is tied into fossil fuels. One of the things that's really important about this treaty is it's something actually really hopeful and addresses the source of the problem and gets right at it. And I think that it's one of the shining lights of this particular movement right now for climate justice is the treaty. That was Osprey Oriole Lake, Executive Director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network.
and a member of the steering committee for the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty. Learn more about the proposed treaty by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Since Elon Musk, the billionaire owner of Tesla and SpaceX, took control of Twitter on October 27th, he's fired about half the social media platform's workforce, including employees overseeing content moderation. Musk, who calls himself a free speech absolutist and says he wants to operate Twitter as a politically neutral town square, has reversed suspensions of accounts that were accused of making threats, promoting hate speech, and spreading disinformation. Those allowed to return to Twitter include Donald Trump and anti-Semitic rapper Kanye West, who was recently suspended again after he praised Adolf Hitler and Nazis. Among the most toxic Twitter accounts Musk reactivated was that of Andrew Anglin, publisher of the neo-Nazi website Daily Stormer. The Center for Countering Digital Hate, the Anti-Defamation League, and other groups monitoring Twitter have found a steep rise in anti-Semitic, misogynist, homophobic, and racist posts since Musk implemented new policies. Your reporter spoke with Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights with the group FreePress.net. Here she examines the wider impact of Elon Musk's policies at Twitter that include broken promises on content moderation and an end to enforcement of Twitter's policy against COVID disinformation and misinformation. Every day, I would say almost every hour, there is a new wrinkle to something shocking or abhorrent that Elon Musk has done since taking Twitter private. The specific examples you give are excellent, and they're a big piece of what we have been monitoring. There are some some other ones, and I'll just provide a few of those. The day after Musk took over Twitter, it were really interesting. Those first, like, 12 hours, many individuals who had been operating on different platforms, like 4chan, which is a more toxic platform, more fringe, a lot of those individuals came over to Twitter to test the boundaries of what was going to be allowed and what was going to be moderated and taken down. Use of the N-word, for example, in just those first 12 hours of Musk taking over Twitter jumped 500%, 500%. And then in the days that followed, it jumped 1,300%. His first order of business was to, of course, fire the CEO, fire the COO, remove safety executives, including the general counsel, human rights experts. He removed moderation teams, integrity teams, but he also created a culture that really kind of suggested everything needed to flow from him, that this is a platform of and by Elon Musk. 
And he doesn't do things by democracy, which he often talks about. He says he's supportive of civic engagement, of free speech, of broad participation. But his form of free speech is doing Twitter polls. And he makes a number of critical moderation decisions, such as inviting Trump back on, through those types of Twitter polls. So there's sort of this like undercurrent, I would say a cultural undercurrent that he says one thing, wants to seem a certain way, and yet behaves very erratically and makes decisions without consultation or taking the advice of experts around him. As a result, Twitter has become more toxic. This is now an environment that isn't just more dangerous, it's also just chaotic. And it's both of those. It's dangerous, it's less safe. And it's messy. Nora, advertisers are essential for any social media site to survive, at least in in this particular operation at Twitter. What's the responsibility of advertisers in this moment when things are going so toxic and so wrong at Twitter in terms of having a town square that's not filled with threats and hate and violence? about the user experience and certainly what what do brands see themselves they buy advertisements on twitter and then their ad content is featured next to any number of posts on your or my feed and if you're scrolling and you see some horrific post from kanye west and then next to it you see an ad for coca-cola or hbo or disney or eli Lilly. you can name any of these advertisers you'll closely then associate that brand with the horrific vitriolic post that you saw next to it. There's this interesting relationship where I think buys, the advertisement buys, can be a very powerful force for good. These advertisers could potentially help shape and put pressure on Elon Musk. So this has been something I've been thinking about for some time, my colleagues in the civil rights space, as well as through a coalition that we launched. We call it Stop Toxic Twitter, and we have come together as a coalition of over 60 civil and consumer rights groups, urging and working with advertisers to accept nothing less than a safer platform for their brands. A number, I would say dozens at this point of advertisers, have actually pulled their ads from Twitter, and it has made Elon Musk mad. He has tweeted about it. He has tried to pressure them. He has courted advertisers through phone calls and his, what he calls, Twitter spaces, uh, you know, town halls, essentially. And yet he refuses to make any meaningful changes to reverse the severe consequences of what he has unleashed. So his commitments to election integrity ring hollow when we see that even advertisers have not been able to sway him. So we're hoping that this is part of a broader movement where we will be evaluating Musk closely, holding him accountable to his commitments, but also bringing more actors in to try to pressure movement towards a safer experience for people. That was Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights with the Media Democracy Group, freepress.net. Learn more about the group's Stop Toxic Twitter campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening at WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, WPPP in Athens, Georgia, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.